Welcome to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, which is made possible by you, our patrons on Patreon. We're always looking for ways to thank you for your generosity in making all our shows on StarQuest possible, and this is one of those ways. Uh, we recently reached out and asked if you had questions you'd like to ask, and we got many great responses, and that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, how, how will we be handling the questions today? Well, as usual, we'll be handling as many as we can. And normally I, we have to have a disclaimer that if we have some questions left over, we'll save them for next time. But I think today we're probably going to be able to get through them all. Let's jump right in. Our first question comes from Adam Specht. He says, uh, Jimmy and Dom, what do you think about strange local places that appear to defy nature? I'm thinking of places like Gravity Hill, which is the, the Oak Hill and Berry Hill intersection in Danville, Virginia, where if a stopped car is put in neutral with no foot on the brakes or accelerator, it will be slowly pulled uphill. Also, Overton Bridge, dear Dambarton, West Dambertonshire, Scotland, where a seemingly odd number of dogs appear to leap to their death. So uh, there are different explanations for different locations. In the case of Gravity Hill, my understanding is that there is a there is an optical illusion in the landscape. So what looks like what or I should say what actually is a downward slope in the road is occurs in a context with the surrounding landscape that makes it look like it's an upward slope. So it's really sloping down, but it looks like it's sloping up. And so that's why if you put a car in neutral, it will really roll down the downward slope, but it looks like it's rolling up an upward slope. Mm. And this isn't something that just happens in Danville, Virginia. There are other gravity hills uh, elsewhere. And in fact, this technique is used in fun houses. Uh, of various kinds. I, I remember every year I, I grew up near Branson, Missouri, at, which is the site of Silver Dollar City, which is a kind of 1880s themed amusement park. And they would have this mystery house. I'd go up to Silver Dollar City every summer when I was a kid and they had this mystery house that had all kinds of illusions in it, including these gravity based illusions where it looks like something will roll uphill when really it's going down. In terms of Overton Bridge, my understanding is that in this case, there's another optical illusion. And what it is, is if you're on the bridge, the surrounding terrain makes it look like if you're if if you're short and you can't see over the railings easily, the sides of the bridge, it looks like you're on level ground. And so dogs being short or shorter than the walls of the bridge think they're on level ground. And then they scent an animal. And because scent is the primary sense for dogs, they're not very visual the way we are. They're primarily oriented towards the olfactory sense or scent. They get excited. They get on this animal's scent trail and they think, I can leap over this barrier and I'll be on level ground. And in fact, they leap over this barrier and they're in free fall. And so that seems to be the explanation, or at least that's a proposed explanation for what's happening there. Okay. Samuel Devick writes, hey, Jimmy, there's this thing called the real cup. It has a scented rim, which makes water taste like soda or some sort of drink. If you drink it before the fast for receiving the Eucharist, would it be breaking the fast? This is a question my brother thought of, and we wanted to ask you about it. It would not break the fast according to the letter of the law. So the letter of the law says water does not break the fast. Even if you're smelling something at the same time you're drinking water and that scent tricks your sense of taste into thinking you're tasting something, all you're really doing is drinking water. So water does not break the fast. This does not break the letter of the law. Having said that, if you were to do it deliberately, it kind of would break the, the spirit of the law. So if someone suddenly remembers, oh, I had a drink from this cup and it tasted like soda and it's within an hour of when I'm going to receive communion, I would say, don't worry about it. You didn't do it deliberately. It does not break the does not break the fast. On the other hand, if someone said, I don't like doing the fast, so I'm going to drink from this scented cup to 
get around the letter of the law, well, that's not a spiritually constructive attitude to be taking. So I wouldn't suggest that as your attitude. Okay. Kay Hansen writes, The classical composer Paganini was rumored to have sold his soul to the devil in exchange for supernatural talent. Do you believe that it is actually possible to do this in general? And what is your opinion on this specific case? Being both a violinist and Catholic, I'm intrigued by the legend, even though I don't think it likely to be true. Thank you both. I don't have specific information on the Paganini legend, but in terms of selling souls, it is not possible. Souls are inalienable possessions, meaning you cannot transfer them to someone else, not in any literal way. And we'll have a couple of posts I wrote about that in the further resources, because this is something that comes up, you know, scrupulous people, people with OCD will sometimes be afraid they, they've sold their souls or something. And it's like, no, do not worry about this. Your soul is yours. It is inalienable. It, you cannot transfer title of ownership to someone else. God has given it to you. And you are the one responsible for it. Now, what people can't could do hypothetically is make a deal with the devil where you receive some benefit like being a genius violinist from him or something. And that's a mortal sin. And so you could go to hell for dealing with the devil in that way. I mean, being a genius violinist is not the sin. Making the deal with the devil would be the sin. And so your willingness to be damned would itself be you know, the matter of the sin. And so you could, in a kind of metaphorical way, do this, but it's not literal because all you have to do to reclaim your soul is repent. Mm -hmm. Just repent and go to confession and you're fine. The devil cannot hold a mortal sin over you. Anytime you commit a mortal sin, you've done something like this, you know, whether it's for one kind of pleasure or another. Any mortal sin is like this, but then all you have to do is repent. So it's not possible to literally sell your soul to the devil. And even if you've committed a mortal sin, just repent and God loves you and will take you back just like he took back the prodigal son, which is the point of that parable that God will take you back even when you've fallen into grave sin. Okay. Joe Trizos writes, this one will be personal to many. Some think a diagnosis of fibromyalgia is fake, just a placeholder for a doctor who can't figure it out. Others feel it is definitely a specific condition that they can't treat. Would love to hear your take on this. There are other ways of using a placeholder for things we don't understand. One of them, for example, is describing an, a condition as idiopathic, meaning we don't know where it came from. I know there is controversy about about fibromyalgia. I have not studied it enough to be able to offer an opinion. I have met people who, in fact, I, I one of my colleagues at Catholic Answers years ago was a woman named Terry Newkirk. She was the answer. She was the editor of what's now Catholic Answers magazine. Back then it was called This Rock. And she reported suffering from fibromyalgia and suffering it so badly that she had to quit and go on disability. And so for her, fibromyalgia was a very real thing. I mean, whatever it was, it severely impacted her life. And whether it should be diagnosed as fibromyalgia or something else, I know there are different physicians who have different opinions about that, but there is something happening with these people that is real. And it's just a question of, do we have the right classification to properly diagnose it, or does that need to be refined in some way? And that is, goes beyond my area of expertise. Yeah, I have someone in my family who's similarly diagnosed with fibromyalgia, and it, it, whatever's going on is very real, and this yeah, that's not in their head. Brooke Kennel writes, Hey, Jimmy and Dom, I was curious as to what you guys think about the Winchester mansion. Uh, in fact, she has several of them, so maybe we could uh, deal with them individually, or do you want me to go through sure, all Sure, sure, sure. Okay. So the, the Winchester mansion was built by the widow of the guy who founded the Winchester Firearms Company. So allegedly, it's haunted by the ghosts of the men who've been killed by Winchester rifles. And she built the house. Today is a tourist attraction, but she built the house in this kind of weird way. Now, the legend or one version of the legend is that she had this because of all the men that were killed by her husband's firearms. She needed to keep the sound of hammers going 
in the house to like ward off or appease the ghosts or something. And so, you know how you have the hammer of a firearm that sets it off the sound of hammers. There there must always be the sound of hammers falling in the Winchester house. <laughs> now, apparently that's not true that she did take long breaks of months at a time in the building process, but it was still a very eccentric building and may have been motivated. I haven't studied this in detail yet, but may have been motivated by a concern for, you know, ghostly phenomena. So I look forward to learning more about this. I have had it on the list for a long time, but uh, thus far haven't been able to dig into the details. Okay. Her next part of her question is ghost hunting immoral. I used to enjoy ghost hunting shows years ago, but stopped watching them because sometimes they would use mediums. But upon reflection, does asking ghosts to manifest themselves and using recording devices to facilitate their answer also count as a form of illicit contact with the dead? If it is immoral, is there a way to investigate ghostly phenomena without recourse to such tactics? So there's nothing wrong with investigating an aspect of God's world. I mean, God doesn't, you know, God gave us the gift of reason and he expects us to use it to figure out the world. And if we know that something exists or have reason to suspect that it exists, God doesn't expect us to pretend that it doesn't. So there's nothing wrong with the idea of trying to get evidence about ghosts or the afterlife in general, there's nothing wrong with using, you know, recorders, recording devices to try to capture that evidence so that it's documentable. That's just one way of documenting the evidence. The questionable part is when you involve a medium. So mediums, classically what they do is they'll call up a spirit and try to get information out of the spirit. And that is, you know, information about the future or other things you're not aware of, like tell me where the treasure is buried or whatever it may be. And that is forbidden. That's forbidden in the book of Deuteronomy. And it's clear that the purpose of that is gaining this information about other things. I say it's clear because of what it's contrasted with. In giving the instructions to the Israelites not to have mediums in their land, God says, but I will send you prophets and you're to listen to them. And so you are to listen to a prophet to gain supernatural information. You're not to listen to a medium. So don't be calling up the dead for that. Well, what about not asking the spirit for information, but just asking the spirit to manifest in some way that might be recordable? That seems to kind of be a boundary. It's kind of on, it seems to me to be kind of on the bubble. If you were going further and saying, tell me where the treasure is or what's going to happen next week, that would clearly be over the line. But it is possible in the case of like a saint to simply say, hey, if it's God's will, I'd love to have a sign that you're there. And in fact, a lot of people, even if the person is not a saint, a lot of people, when they lose a loved one, they may say, honey, if it's God's will, I'd love to hear a sign. I'd love to have a sign just to know you're okay. And that's not summoning up the dead to pump them for information. That seems to be an entirely natural human thing to do. So if all so I wouldn't have anything to do with a medium. But if a researcher were just asking, hey, if could we have a sign so we could investigate? Is this real? That's kind of in a more of a gray zone for me. And then Brick has a question from her husband, Matt. He says, uh, what do you make of the belief alluded to in John 21 that the Apostle John never died? Some versions of this belief, as in Vladimir Solovyev's A Short Tale, a short tale of the Antichrist, seems to even give him some kind of role in the end times, for instance, as one of the two witnesses. I don't generally have weird end times beliefs, but this one strikes my aesthetic fancy, and I'd be curious to get Jimmy's take. Well, uh, in terms of aesthetic fancy, there are all kinds of interesting things one can speculate about. I mean, you could have John as an immortal along with the wandering Jew, and maybe they're the two witnesses. That would be kind of a neat idea to explore fictionally, but I don't think there's any evidence for that. I think that because, just like we read at the end of John 21, Jesus said, Peter was asking about, Jesus had just prophesied Peter's martyrdom, and 
Peter sees the beloved disciple following them and says, what about him? And Jesus says, hey, what if he remains until I come back? That that doesn't mean anything to you. You focus on what you need to focus on. And the author of John's gospel, commonly thought to be John, son of Zebedee, though there is a case to be made that he's a different John called John the Presbyter. He says that because Jesus said this as a kind of hypothetical, what if, that a rumor started among the brethren that he would never die. So he would live to see the second coming. And the way that would have been interpreted in the first century is, oh, the second coming is going to happen in our lifetimes because he's going to be alive to see it. They didn't imagine him living for centuries. They imagined, okay, he's going to live to 90, maybe 100, and the second coming will happen before that. So that's how they would have interpreted it. But John, now that he's getting old, knows, hey, Jesus just said it as a hypothetical, so don't count on this. And that's why he takes time in recounting this story to explain Jesus did not say that he would live until the second coming. Jesus just said, what if? And the point of that is to warn the reader in the first century, don't think the second coming is going to happen before my death. That's not what Jesus said. So he's clearly downplaying these rumors, and he certainly is not advocating the idea, I'm going to live for centuries, so, which isn't even how this passage would have been understood in the first century. It's anachronistic to read it in that light. So I don't think we have evidence that John lived beyond the first century or the, at least the first few years of the second century. And in fact, for both John the Presbyter and John the Apostle, they have graves at Ephesus. So their deaths were recorded in the early church and their grave sites commemorated and are commemorated today. I've been to one of them. Okay. So the next one, John Scrivo wants to pin you down on this one, Jimmy. (laughs) He says, I would like to know Jimmy's bottom line on whether he thinks extraterrestrial sightings on Earth are really aliens. My honest answer is that I don't know for sure. I'm open minded. I have yet to find one that convinces me, but I also have yet to have conclusive evidence to the contrary. And there are some suggestive things that I don't know for sure how to explain. So this is one where my honest opinion is I don't know, but I'm open and still studying and I'm open to being convinced both ways. We have another question from Adam Spacht, who says, uh, do we have any evidence of Marian apparitions outside of Western Catholicism? What about anyone from Eastern Rite Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy or Oriental Christianity? If there are any of those, would they potentially be, quote, worthy of belief? Also, when is the earliest record of such an apparition? They seem to be piled up a lot later in the timeline of Christianity, with dozens potentially in the last one or 200 years or so. But I'm thinking this might be just be my chronocentrism, since I'm more familiar with recent history than ancient history, that it appears that more apparitions were reported closer to the present time than spaced out over the past 2000 years. And finally, any mention of apparitions from the church fathers? So in reverse order, yes, there are apparitions mentioned in the church fathers. I don't have the details of any of them ready to hand, but there were lots of people in the early church who had visions and thus apparitions of one sort or another. In terms of how have they changed in terms of frequency historically, I don't have a way of assessing that. It is true that there have been a large number, a comparatively large number of approved apparitions in the last few centuries. That may have more to do, though, with the church getting a a more rigorous approval investigation process in place, as well as the general efficiency that has come along with developing modern society. So it may just be we have better information, better communication, better investigations, and more expeditious analyses being done, and that's resulted in a higher percentage of approved cases compared to the past. In the Middle Ages, probably most of the time, the local bishop didn't really investigate. It's just, oh, some monk is reporting or nun is reporting seeing Mary or Jesus. And okay, are they saying anything heretical? No? Okay, then we're good. So they probably didn't do 
the kind of modern investigation in a lot of those cases. And I know of lots of cases of people who had private revelations in the past, even though there was never an official investigation of the modern type. St. Hildegard of Bingen is one of those. She had lots of reported revelations, but even though she's a saint and a doctor of the church, there was never a modern style investigation of are these apparitions authentic? And so I I don't think we have, at least I'm not aware of any good studies of what's the relative frequency of reports of revelations down through history, much less do we have a good basis for saying, okay, and what's the evidence of each one being genuine? And how has that changed over history? Backing up a little further to the, are there non-Catholic apparitions? Yes, there are. And I don't dismiss a revelation just because it's not Catholic. We did, I believe it was episode 44 on John Hendricks, the Tennessee prophet. And he, there's a good case. He got private revelations, even though he was in the Protestant community. There have certainly been Marian apparitions in Eastern Christianity, including a famous one in Egypt from the 1960s, Our Lady of Zaytun. And this is widely believed not only by Copts and Orthodox, but also Catholics. It's considered quite credible. I haven't personally investigated the details enough yet to do a full episode on it, but I do expect we'll be talking about Our Lady of Zaytun in the future. Joel Cobb writes, I was wondering if you could explain the difference in accounts of the Holy Spirit coming to the apostles. At the end of John's gospel, he is said to come upon them when Jesus breathes upon them. Of course, at Pentecost, we celebrate that the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples in tongues of fire. Why would the apostles need the Holy Spirit here if they'd already received it earlier in the upper room? Thank you for your insight. So the solution is to recognize that the Holy Spirit does not come to us just once in life. The Holy Spirit comes to us in many at many points in our lives and often for different purposes. We see this in Scripture in a variety of ways, but a particularly strong demonstration of it is in the book of Revelation, where you're reading along and John will say more than once, suddenly I was in the spirit. So even during the course of the book of Revelation and the vision that comprises it, John has the spirit rush upon him multiple different times. And so we receive the Holy Spirit many times in our lives in different ways. So we receive the Holy Spirit in baptism. We receive the Holy Spirit in confirmation. We receive the Holy Spirit in ordination if we're, uh, if we're a member of the clergy. We experience the Holy Spirit when we have char- various charismatic phenomena manifest. We experience the Holy Spirit if we're having a vision. We experience the Holy Spirit bunches of different ways. So the question is not so much how do we square these two events in John's Gospel and in the book of Acts, but what is the Holy Spirit coming on the disciples for in these cases? And for that, you just have to read the text. So in John's gospel, Jesus comes to the disciples and says, as my father sent me, so I send you. Whosoever sends you forgive, they are forgiven. Whosoever sends you retain, they are retained. And in the course of all that, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So that's the purpose of the bestowal of the Holy Spirit in this instance. It's to empower them to hear confessions, to either forgive or retain sins. Because if you if they're to know which one they're supposed to do, should I forgive this or should I retain this, then you need to tell them about it and if you're sorry or not. So, hence, confession, since most priests are not telepathic. If they're going to know about the sin and are you repentant, you got to tell them. So, Jesus is empowering them here to forgive sins and thus to hear confessions. That's not what's happening in Acts. In Acts, Jesus is talking to them and before the ascension, and he says that before many days, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high, and you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Sumeria and to the ends of the earth. And that has been often pointed out. That's the outline of the book of Acts. The gospel spreads through Judea, then Sumeria, then all over the world. And so 
Hence, in context, the purpose of the bestowal of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost is not to empower them to forgive sins, but is to empower them for evangelization. And so that's what's going on there. But these are only two of many instances where the disciples receive the Holy Spirit in the course of their lives for different purposes. So whatever purpose God has for you, he can give you the Holy Spirit to strengthen you for it. Ramses writes, Hey, Jimmy and Dom, I was wondering if you could give an explanation for something strange that I've experienced multiple times in my life. Every once in a blue moon, I'll have a dream about something that ends up happening in real life. Most of the time, these visions of the future are mundane, like me eating cereal or something. Other times, however, I will dream about having a conversation with a friend about a very specific topic, and later, sometimes months later, my friend and I will have that exact same conversation in real life, word for word, to the point where I will know what my friend is going to say next. I've spoken to close friends and family about this, and they tell me the same thing happens to them too, so I'm inclined to believe that this happens to everyone at some point. None of us knows what's to make of it, or even what to call it. Anyways, it would be much appreciated to finally get an explanation for this. God bless. So, when evaluating claims like this, or situations or reports like this, one does have to be attentive to the possibility of chance. Now, you mentioned, like, sometimes it's mundane, like eating cereal, and that could be just due to chance. But then there are these situations where it's less predictable, and now... If one wanted to be scientific about it, and there are there are actually parapsychologists who do scientific studies of precognitive dreams, that's what these are called, precognitive dreams, you would want to be really rigorous and say, well, to what extent could you predict what your friend was going to say, not on the basis of this dream, but on your knowledge of your friend and his views of the topic? that you were discussing. But still, there will be situations that just go beyond random chance. I've had that happen myself. I think I've mentioned it here before on Mysterious World, but if not, I'll tell the story now, and I'll also be repeating it in the future when we do an episode on dreaming. Back when I was a teenager, I had a precognitive dream that went beyond random chance. I dreamed that I was in my art class and that I was painting not on an easel, but on a large, flat surface that was horizontally flat. And I was painting with green and purple. And as I was painting, a guy in class who didn't like me, named Lyndon, came up and said, what do you think you're doing? And I was struck by this dream, and I told a friend of mine who was in the same art class named Charlie. And that day, in art class our art teacher pulled us off of our existing project. So I'd been working on something else. She pulls us off of all of our existing projects. The reason is there is a fair coming up, a school fair coming up, and she has agreed for us to paint the the comical cutouts that will be used, the kind of cutout where you like stick your head through a slot and then they take a picture of you with a painting of like a, bodybuilder or a bathing beauty or something. Well, she's agreed that our art class is going to make those for the school fair. And she assigns. And so we've got these big flats of cardboard that are too big for an easel. And so they get put down horizontally on tables. And she assigns me to do the Incredible Hulk, who has (laughs) green skin and purple pants. So here I am painting on a large, flat, horizontal surface on a project I was not expecting and could not have predicted. I'm using green and purple paint. Those are the colors I'm assigned. And Lyndon comes up and says, what do you think you're doing? And Charlie was right there to saw to see it, and his mouth fell open because <laughs> I told him this before any of it happened and before either of us could have predicted it. So this is a case of a dream that goes beyond random chance and was was predictive. So it looks like a precognitive dream in terms of what could explain it. Well, you know, could be a private revelation from God, but it doesn't seem to have any religious content. So it doesn't present itself as a private revelation. Could be something from demons because it's It's always always demons. demons. (laughs) But... Again, there's no there's no religious content here. What it presents itself as is 
a natural thing. There's no spirit voices or anything like that involved here. It just presents itself as a natural thing. And Thomas Aquinas would agree. As we covered in episode 106, that was part two of our discussion of Aquinas in the occult, he thought that in addition to supernatural prophecy, or what he would call prophecy in the true sense, we also, humans, have a weak natural ability that he referred to as natural prophecy that could give you beyond random chance dreams of what's going to happen in the future. Now, he attributed this to the influence of the stars. I wouldn't buy that, but Aquinas could be right that humans have a weak natural ability to be precognitive, especially in dreams. And so that could explain this. On the other hand, it could have a natural explanation. It may be beyond random chance, but it may just be a fluke. But those would be some of the options. Mark Casanto writes, uh, Greetings, Jimmy and Dom. Because we all share the reality of one day dying, death is a preoccupation. Near-death experiences or witnessed loved ones dying can be extraordinary and speak volumes of the reality of the hound of heaven at work. Why are these experiences still not enough for some people not to be afraid of death? I think there are several reasons. The first one is death aversion is programmed into us. It's something that God has used to help keep us alive. The fact we're naturally averse to death, that's something that is in all organisms that don't go extinct. It's part of our evolutionary history. If an organism dies before it reproduces, then it's not, it's going to take itself out of the gene pool. It wins the Darwin Award. But God wanted life to live, and so he made life forms death averse. And that's true of humans. It's true of anybody with a human nature. It's even true of Jesus. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus becomes very agitated. And he prays that the cup may pass from him if it's God's will. And it's because Jesus has death aversion just like the rest of us. So I think one of the reasons people are afraid of death is because we're death averse, and that's what helps keep us alive. Also, the near-death experiences, even though they're much more common than people think, and and other not just near not just NDEs where you die and see, and come back, but also other deathbed phenomena, which we'll talk about in the future, they're much more common than a lot of people think. But they're still infrequent enough that not everybody's aware of them and that there or has much information about them. And so consequently, they don't provide the amount of comfort they could to people if they happened more frequently. Then there's the fact they're not all positive. There are people who've had NDEs who came back and said, I need to repent. That was no fun. And so they're just because they would provide evidence of an afterlife doesn't mean that they're, they should be personally comforting to you if you're not living the way you should. Then there's the fact that modern science has an anti-supernatural bias that has discouraged investigation into these. And so that's one thing that deprives them of some of the comfort value they could otherwise have. And then there's the fact that some people just lack faith. They don't want there to be an afterlife or they they're not willing to make that leap, even if they kind of maybe it'd be kind of nice. But I'm not willing to really credit these experiences and give them the evidential value that other people may. Kathy Say, who uh, writes, I keep a list in my phone for times like these. So here we go. Number one, St. Thomas of Millipore. Number two, Roman emperors acted crazy because of lead poisoning. Number three, Hubble versus Lemaitre. Four, whole life flashbacks during imminent death experiences. Five, the Mayan calendar in regard to Christian historical timeline. Six, could the Mesoamerican god Quetzalcoatl be, have been a Christian missionary? Seven, magnetic pole shifts. Eight, what is consciousness? Nine, the modern space race, Musk et al. And uh, she says, sorry, thank you. You'll get all that, Jerry? Well, there's <laughs> a lot there. Uh, thank you, Kathy. I'm afraid that I'll have to defer those topics to future possible episodes. I will mention that in, if you go back and listen to episode 27 on near-death experiences, I believe we at least briefly discussed the life reviews 
that people report when they have an NDE. So at least that one we've done, had a brief discussion of. We've also had some discussion of Hubble and LaMaitre, like in our episode on the case of the missing universe, but not specifically on a on a controversy between them. So I'll see what we can do for the future with these topics. James Ladisky writes, Hi, Jimmy and Dom. It seems that's getting more difficult to find accurate and credible information these days on most every topic. Can you give us an idea of the process you use to validate the accuracy of a news source, document, or article? And if you're so inclined, do you have specific sources you like to use for daily news or keeping up with the events of the day? Thanks, friends. Many continued blessings to both of you as you continue to produce this, my favorite podcast. So in terms of information, in terms of just researching subjects, I do a number of things. One of the things I try to do is find primary sources. You know, that is firsthand accounts that were written by the people involved. And they I give them a lot of weight, much more than distantly repeated stuff. If in addition to primary sources, I give weight to scholarly sources. So even though it's a secondary source, it's written by someone who's an actual scholar and that gives it some additional weight compared to people who are less critical in recounting things. I also make a point of studying things from multiple perspectives because I want to see all of the different ideas about something tested. I don't want to reflexively fall into one just because it's interesting or that's all the reading I've done. I want to see people of different viewpoints and what their criticisms are of the other person's viewpoint and what evidence they can offer for their own viewpoint. So I deliberately seek out both materials that are supportive and critical of whatever idea I'm researching. I then, on my own, try to come up with arguments both for and against whatever idea I'm researching. So even if I haven't seen other people make this argument, I'll try to say, well, what what occurs to me? What What can I think of that would either support or undermine this claim? In terms of what do I do in terms of keeping up with everyday stuff. I'm not a real news junkie. I used to be back when I was in college. I would, you know, just listen to news all the time. I really don't now because I'm doing all this other stuff. Also, news is kind of depressing. But I make a point of reading people that I disagree with. And so I'm going to mention some websites since you asked, but don't think I agree with everything on these websites because I don't. It's part of my process of let's read everybody. For Catholic news, and this is a site I can give a, a, a strong recommendation to, I read newadvent.org. In fact, I subscribe to them by email, and so every day I get an email with their headlines of, of mostly Catholic news, and I'll check that out. Sometimes, not very often, but sometimes I will also go to realclearreligion.org. And not it's not dot com. That's a different site. But there's this found. I don't know. Don't know exactly what they are. A foundation, but they're called Real Clear, and they try to be nonpartisan in their presentation of different subject areas. And so, RealClearReligion.org surveys religion news, and they try to. It's not just Catholic. It's all different kinds of religion news. Every day, I definitely check Real Clear Science. Dot com for my science news. I also frequently will check realclearhistory.com for my history news. Yes, that is a thing. <laughs> in a in a political cycle, and I'm not a very political person, but in a political cycle, I will check realclearpolitics.com. You know, like in in getting leading up to an election, I'll be interested to see what's happening. So I'll check realclearpolitics.com. And they try to be nonpartisan. They try to present both sides. And that's something that the Real Clear different channels try to do generally. They don't always succeed, but they try. And so I like that. I admire that. That's what I want is I want to hear both sides of a subject. Now, for secular news, including political news, there's something of a problem because at least since the 1950s and really probably even before that, there has been a left-leaning bias in American news media. And it's gotten worse in recent years. In fact, in in just the last few years, the, the mainstream media has become nakedly partisan. So it's like they're not even trying to 
pretend to be objective a lot of the time. So that means just by being in the world and being exposed, you know, to media through, let's say, social networking, I'll see references to stories people are linking. I get a lot of liberal-leaning stories, and I hear a lot of liberal-leaning claims. So since I want to see all viewpoints cross-examined, I, you know, want some place to, like, go for an alternative perspective. And But I don't want it to be super partisan either, because I don't like partisanship of any flavor. It, I, I, my preference is for let's try to be as objective as we can here, rather than just rah-rah, go tribe. So... One place that actually used to be pretty balanced was DrudgeReport.com. Now, Drudge Report has a reputation of being conservative, but that's because Drudge was actually covering a mix of stories that had both liberal and conservative perspectives. And so to people who are used to the liberal media, it made Drudge look conservative. Actually, because that's what they wanted. They wanted another liberal leaning site, and he wasn't doing that. He was doing something in the middle. Unfortunately, in my opinion, Drudge Report has gotten has gone down in quality recently. There are even rumors that Matt Drudge sold it and someone else is running it. I don't know if that's true, but I do know that I don't find it near as useful anymore. So I, I don't go to it except on a very occasional basis where I tend to go to get a cross-examination narrative is a site called instapundit.com. It was founded by a law professor in Tennessee named Glenn Reynolds, but these days it's a group blog, and the bloggers are a, a bunch of lawyers and other smart people, and so it's, and they're, even though there are running gags on it, the real value is it, it tends to be microblogging. They'll have like a running gag, a colon, and then a headline to an article they're linking to. And because they're smart people doing this, they're linking to more analytical pieces that are of more value to me in terms of thinking through an issue. And the overall perspective of the blog is basically libertarian. So it's libertarian, and like a lot of libertarian stuff, it leans conservative a little bit, but not on other issues. And so this is a kind of somewhat in the middle website that I can use to cross-examine the, the left-leaning narratives that are common in the mainstream media. And so I will go to Instapundit and do that. Also, they also cover, even though they cover some stuff I'm not interested in, like some sporting events. They do cover some additional things that I am interested in, like medical news, science news, and space news. So they they track, you know, the modern space race activities and so forth. And I find that valuable as well. Tristram Carlyle asks, perhaps you've already covered this, but is there a presidential book of secrets as in the movie National Treasure 2? It does not appear so. What does happen is a president is given security briefings. And so when a new president is elected, even before he comes into office, because he needs to hit the ground running right after the inauguration, they start briefing him and they have different groups come in. So the CIA will give him a briefing. The Department of Defense will give him a briefing. The, you know, the Justice Department will give him a briefing. Everybody starts briefing him. And some of these go on, occur regularly. And you'll they'll, he'll even have daily briefings on some subjects throughout his term in office. Some of these will cover things of historical interest. So he understands how we got to where we are on a subject. But it doesn't appear that there's a literal book of secrets. That's more a metaphor for the president's security briefings. Does they get the Area 51 briefing before or after inauguration? That's my question. <laughs> well, I don't I don't know. But um, I that may be one where I mean, Area 51, because it's a research facility, that's going to come up in some of the Defense Department briefings when they're looking at budget allocations for various classified projects. Right. But if he wants to know about are there UFOs there, he may have to ask and they may <laughs> not tell him. Hmm. Uh, I want the Skinwalker Ranch briefing. <laughs> yeah, I think they'd have to get back to him on that one. Yes. Tristram Carlyle also asks, could you provide an overview of the Masonic influence in architecture, for example, in Washington, D.C., and in our country's symbols like dollar bills, the all-seeing eye, etc., and an overview of Masonic organization and beliefs? 
For that, I'll have to do it in a future episode, and I do plan to do that. I've had masonry on the list for a long time. In fact, we'll probably be doing multiple episodes on Freemasonry. Having said that, I can say that based on the research I've I've done thus far, there is a Masonic influence on architecture in Washington, D.C. That is not surprising because a lot of early government leaders, when those buildings were being built, were Freemasons. And a lot of architects also have been Freemasons. Similarly, there is some Masonic imagery on the dollar bill. And so I think that we don't need to go crazy in attributing undue significance to all this, but it is a real thing. And so we will be talking about it as well as masonry in general in future episodes. Megan Strickland asks, what are your thoughts on the Gadienton Canyon parallel universe slash other dimension stories in Utah? Speaking of Skinwalker Ranch, that's my interjection. I would love to hear Uh anything and everything you can find on this. So, Megan, you got me on this one. I had not previously heard of Getty Anton Canyon, but I did a little research and we'll have a link to a post that hopefully should give you some more stuff to think about. Mm. Brendan writes, I recall Father Joseph Comanchaks mentioned in class years ago, there was a U.S. bishop, I think from New Mexico, but I'm not sure on that point, that recommended that Vatican II consider something along the lines of how the church should relate to or evangelize extraterrestrials during the preparation period for the council. That didn't make the cut for the council, but do you know anything about this bishop bringing it up? I haven't been able to find the details anywhere online, but Father Kamanchek is a a major expert on the history of Vatican II. I'm afraid I don't know anything about this. I have not heard about this before. It's certainly an interesting story. I would love to hear what Father Kamanchek might have to say about it. And the good news is he's still alive. He's 81 years old right now, but he is still alive. And so it might be possible to contact him since you were in a class of his. Brendan, you might be able to know how to reach him. I did some research trying to find uh, contact information on him, and thus far, I have not been able to do so. If you or if anybody else in the audience knows how to contact Father Kamanchak and could uh, send me his contact information, I would be interested in looking into this in more depth and seeing what can be established. Also, back in episode 55 here on Mysterious World, we dealt with aliens and religion. So that's something else you could check out for more to think about. And Richard Hansen writes, have you seen Dark on Netflix? It's a really interesting show about time travel. Uh, Warning, there is nudity. Uh, And it contains lots of paradoxes. Without giving away any spoilers, if time travel were possible, could you be your own grandmother slash grandfather? Would that cause a time loop? Are there any religious implications, i.e. if I went back in time and became my own grandfather and died, but then did the whole loop over and over? Does each iteration have a discrete soul or am I trapped in a sort of purgatory until God breaks the loop at the end of the world? Okay, so I have seen part of Dark, but I have not seen all of Dark. And it was a little dark for me, but (laughs) I may go back and finish it up at some point. And by dark, I don't mean evil sinister. It was just I just found it a little depressing. But, you know, I understand that there are some very interesting things later in the series, and it's a short series, and so I may go back and finish it up. In terms of the question, well, you would not end up in a limbo, and you would not end up in a time paradox. This is a fairly straightforward one. Let's suppose I, Jimmy Aiken, now, by the way, number one, do not become your own grandmother or grandfather. (laughs) <laughs> OK, that's that's going to violate the principle of consanguinity along the direct line. Never, ever do that. So having said that, let's suppose I go back in time and without realizing this is my grandmother, somehow I end up becoming my own grandfather. Well, and then let's say I die in the past. I don't live up to 2020. Well, what would happen is just the same thing that would happen to my body. In a sense, my body left 2020 and went back a couple of generations. And then when I died in the past, my body continues to exist in its grave alongside my living much younger body until my living much younger body vanishes and goes into the past. And then from that point forward, it's just my regular body waiting in the ground to be resurrected. 
Well, basically, the same thing is going to happen with your soul. If I'm proceeding forward in time to the year 2020, and then in that year, I go back a couple of generations, my soul goes back to the past. And then at some point when I die in the past, my body and soul separate. But just like my body continues going forward, my soul continues going forward in time, however time works in the afterlife. And for a period, it will overlap the time that my younger soul is in existence. So when my dead older soul gets up to the point of my conception, and my new, brand new zygote soul comes into existence, there will be two souls of me in existence at once, but one of them will be much older than the other. And then when we get up to the year 2020, my younger soul goes back in time with my younger body, and my existing soul just goes forward. So it's not a closed loop. There is a sort of a loop. You could think of it maybe as a spiral rather than a loop in the closed sense, but there's no paradox here. So my ordin so I only have, I only live my life once and I then just wait until the resurrection after that. So hope that helps, but do not become your own grandpa. As husband of my grandmother, I am my own grandpa. I'm my own grandpa. Everybody. I'm my own grandpa. We'll be right back after this break. All right, Jimmy. Thank you. So uh, that that does it for all the questions we have right now. Uh, what further resources do we have for the t questions from today's show? So first is a link to the movie The Stupids from the 1990s, which is a family comedy starring Tom Arnold. And it has I'm My Own Grandpa in it. That's where that's that's where that version of the song is from. <laughs> Obviously, it's an old country comedy song that was, you know, made famous by Lonzo and Oscar and Grandpa Jones and people like that. We'll also have links to Gravity Hill, Overton Bridge, a couple of links to my articles on selling your soul and how that does not work, a link to a piece on fibromyalgia, also the Winchester Mystery House, Our Lady of Zaytun, and the weird parallel universe accounts of Gadianton Canyon. Excellent. Well, that's it from us. Uh, thank you to all our patrons and especially those who submitted questions. You can submit feedback by going to patreon.com slash starquest or by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page and leaving some feedback there or send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our show today at patreon.com slash starquest and eventually at sqpn.com slash mysterious when we release this episode to the general audience. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to and supporting Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. Quest.